Sometimes when you're driving down the road all by yourself, you begin to hear a voice that tells you you need to look around, pay attention. Maybe something isn't quite right. That voice is me. It's the voice of Gord. G'day and welcome to another episode of Voice of Gord. A couple little programming notes here before we get started I wanted to share with you guys. Uh, some fans of mine down under have decided to add me to their new radio network in Australia. You guys might be familiar with Mike Williams. Um, he's the host of the On the Road radio podcast down under, Australia's number one trucking podcast. Him and some partners have gone out and started a 24-7 radio network that's um, available online in Australia and around the world. Um, they've decided that they would like to include this show, and to them I say thank you very much. And to all of my new listeners in Australia and anywhere else, uh, g'day, how's it going? If you would like to partake of Mike and Andy and Yogi's new project, you can download their very own app. Um, if you're using an Apple phone, uh, it's Australian On The Road Radio. Or if you're using an Android device, it's just called On The Road Radio. And you can listen to them whenever you like. It'll be a mix of trucking, general news, and radio programming. Uh, custom made for Australian truck drivers, I'm guessing. Um, perhaps truckers and other people around the world will enjoy it as well. One other uh, announcement um, I've mentioned previously. I'll be at the Mid-America Trucking Show in Louisville, Kentucky at the end of March with a whole bunch of other truckers and media folks. And uh, as I understand it, Matt's is usually somewhere in the neighborhood of about 30,000 people in attendance, something of a big party. I've never been before. I'm looking forward to going. It's totally free to go. Uh, I think they want people to register and they're trying to track via which way people do register and they gave me a little code so if you're a fan of this show voice of gord and you're going to matt's you can register on their website and the code you want to use is zvz tmz or zvz tmz if you're using the canadian alphabet where we pronounce the letter z a bit differently speaking of the canadian alphabet my guest today is a journalist in Toronto by the name of Alex Brown. He writes at the Acceptable Views Substack. I bumped into Alex last year online and discovered his writings. He's also written for the Western Standard and the Brownstone Institute. He's mostly covered uh, the vagaries of the COVID regime in Canada, uh, Canadian politics, and, you know, much to my uh, great delight. He's been a very good journalist in looking into the Freedom Convoy. Um, Alex was very generous with his time. We had a long-ranging discussion, especially about uh, recent revelations of the Chinese Communist Party getting up to its eyeballs in Canadian politics. It's all very scary and or interesting or fascinating, depending on how you look at it. Um, 
really think I think you guys will enjoy the show. Uh, other than that, um, I depend on you, my listeners, to spread this show around. I don't really advertise. I don't um, have any other social media outside Twitter. So if you guys, like I say, the best thing you can do for this show, which is free and for which I do not take advertising, is tell your friends. Uh, if you know another truck driver, send it to them. Uh, you know, if, if you're talking with your buds about things you listen to while on the road, tell them about my show. Uh, send them the Spotify or the Apple link. And you send them to my Substack, autonomoustruckers.substack.com. If you guys have any feedback, any suggestions, if there's somebody you want to hear on the show, if there's some issue you would like me to address, if you want to give me hell about something, uh, by all means, you can email me, Gordilocks, G-O-R-D-I-L-O-C-K-S, at ProtonMail.com. You can find me on Twitter, at Driver Autonomy. I accept any and all feedback and would love to hear it. All right, well, without any further delay, we will get to Mr. Alex Brown. All right, good day, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of Voice of Gord. I'm Gord, and this is my voice. The other voice you're going to hear today is that of Mr. Alex Brown a fellow writer on Substack and someone who came to my attention from his coverage of the Freedom Convoy. And I'm very happy that Alex could join us today. Good morning, Alex. Hey, good morning, Gord. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you. Where are you joining us from? I am joining you from uh, balmy Toronto, Canada, uh, where, uh, where, the, where we, you know, all the crazy politicians are and uh, where we're just so proud of all our lockdowns and shutdowns and uh, our crazy U of T professors and uh, media personalities. Right, and so how we met, I don't know what, so you and I both have done some writings on the Freedom Convoy, although um, I, I live in the United States now. I, I did go home to Ottawa to support it the first weekend, and uh, about... Three weeks later, I got kicked off of Twitter, right uh, right around when the Emergencies Act was invoked, oddly enough, uh, with similar experience with other Twitter people like Chris Erickson and Andy Lee. And I had not ever heard of you until this fall, probably September or October. You started popping up on my feed and I started reading your Substack. And like, you're a pretty impressive writer, dude. That's very nice of you. I can't speak to the uh, to the quality, but um, I think like like many people, I was at the the convoy as well. Uh, not only did I write a piece for the Brownstone Institute about um, the sort of trek across the highways and across the country, uh, I met ours on an overpass uh, uh, on the 401 um, and and wrote about the people who attended. But I went, I was there for the second weekend and a little bit longer uh, for the convoy. So missed the, uh, missed the, the horse trampling, but spent, spent lots of time there. And when the, when the threats from the government were, were starting to escalate. And like a lot of people over sort of the last two and a half to three years, uh, particularly in that, in that time period, it just 
it felt like the right time to to start speaking out on a different level and and amplifying other voices and and finding ways to find community online and in person of, of people who just knew that the way that Canadians were being treated and and many Westerners, uh, you know, as a whole. And I mean, certainly without saying anything about the craziness going over in say China or Australia, New Zealand was that this just isn't good enough. And we've, we've lost the plot and it, it, it's, it's okay to say words like normal and it's okay to want, you know, one's kids in school that, that shouldn't make you a radical and uh, you know, a little piece of cloth here and there, or, or, or just wanting to go to a gym or open your business that, um, the, the fact that people had been conditioned and so heavily and brutally and without thinking of the consequences to regard those all as threats and as, as just non-starters was so unfortunate. And so it's, uh, yeah, I just, I guess I wanted to start speaking out. I'd already been doing some writing and it was, it was great to find some of your words as well. And then uh, certainly quite a community of, of sort of uh, heterodox voices and, and um, scholars, even politicians, writers, what have you, sort of seem to come together. And um, do you, did you have a background in journalism or writing uh, before uh, the last three years of insanity? I suppose so. I, I guess I was sort of set up to, uh, to, to not to cash in, not that I've made much uh, on it, but uh, I, was, I was working in communications uh, in politics uh, I'd studied political science um, with with a minor um, in in all kinds of English courses and and creative writing and through University of Toronto as well and Dalhousie. I'd been published in a few places for for short stories and 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 what have you. And so I knew I could at least string a couple sentences together. And uh, I hadn't been published in a couple years, but. Um, Eventually, I started sending out articles about, you know, Doug Ford's driving me crazy. Here's why, and places <laughs> like, and play, and and he still he still does even in a in a better year, um, and like the Western Standard said yes, and then the Brownstone Institute said yes, and uh, it just sort of reminded me that uh, oh, I can do this not just on a, a professional level where I'm writing for somebody else and in somebody else's voice or or as this sort of third person organization that's that's keeping it a little bit more professional I suppose I can I can start writing more as myself and then that led to um, some appearances on some radio shows as well and sort of took off from there and then now the Substack has been performing pretty well I've, I've gotten to uh, meet all kinds of writers and I've, I've really enjoyed your work as well uh, some of your recent magazine work as well and so uh, it's a uh, I suppose a few of us were sort of predisposed towards um, having the tools uh, to maybe help find some community here and to uh, to vent some of the frustrations on behalf of others and uh, to try to uh, turn the tide towards sanity a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, Canada's a funny place and so is its media ecosystem, as I'm sure you're well aware. And um, uh, many of us have described it as sort of a mouthpiece for the Uniparty. And there's not a great deal of uh, diversity of thought, as it were, amongst, you know, the, the CBC, CTV, Global, all the majors. And um, there, the, the, because of that, I, I think folks like yourself have, have developed some popularity and following because, you know, Maple Pravda, 
has not been doing anything to hold the government accountable whatsoever. No, you can already see with, um, and if your listeners are unaware, a report in the Globe came out Friday morning that confirmed what there had been long held sort of whispers in the intel community that the Chinese government had interfered in the 2021 Canadian election uh, on behalf of the liberal government because in their mind, a minority liberal government with Justin Trudeau is much easier to manage than a slightly more hawkish conservative government who, I mean, are not perfect on the China file as well, but, but are not as beholden, let's say, to foreign donors without getting into too much trouble. Right. And, uh, and, well, it, it, it's on that note, so for my listeners, we're recording on Sunday, February 19th. This past Friday, some some news came out about the Canadian government that if, if we were not living in clown world, would basically <laughs> sink any administration in normal times. We, we've had uh, the, the, the CSIS document that was published by the Global Mail. Uh, documenting all these connections between the Chinese Communist Party, Trudeau and his liberals. And if I'm not mistaken, was there not a similar uh, accusation and or information dump last year about the Chinese government uh, bankrolling like 19 different MPs across various parties? Like this Chinese involvement in the Canadian government's been an ongoing concern, correct? Yeah, there was. And it's uh, but but hey, they and the CBC told us there was nothing to worry about. And the CBC already, the way they framed the story is like conservatives lash out at as opposed to, uh, you know, perhaps rewording some headlines to say like, oh, we have like a we have a big problem here. And that's not just the conservatives lashing out at it. This was already a known issue. I have some sources, which sounds kind of silly to say, but I do. Sometimes people talk to me and I and I will always protect their their identity and such. But for years, I've been told and I've, I've just written about it. Um, you know, this problem is a lot bigger than than people think. And we kind of have to we, we're not looking the other way. But oh, boy, we can't speak openly about it. And uh, now we have the leak, the CSIS leak, our intelligence leak. And it says a lot as well, where if you look at the the sort of follow-up story in the Globe that was published last night, that the immediate concern of the, the Liberal government is finding the leak, uh, not, the, <laughs> not, not the fact that they may have, you know, flipped a dozen ridings uh, using, like, proxy organizations and good old-fashioned thinly-veiled threats and a whole lot of cash on hand, maybe in a maybe in traditional red envelopes. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's been pretty remarkable to see. It's still just sort of the globe and then independent outfits like carrying this completely. And uh, everybody else is, uh, is is choosing to to focus on other things or making this seem like it is a, it is a conservative issue uh, when it very much is a Canada Five Eyes Western stability issue. Right. And on that note, it's, it, it seems to me there's some analogy here with the Twitter files, which have been slowly leaking out since uh, Mr. Elon Musk took over Twitter. And you, you see the same reaction to that in the American media, that it's a nothing burger. And they're completely dismissing all of the three-letter agencies like the FBI and DHS being up to their eyeballs in literally censoring the internet and in t- and attempting to censor the media. 
um, like in direct contravention of the First Amendment. And and there's this like super weird dismissive reaction to it. And in Canada, they just say, well, this is the Conservative Party conspiracy theory. And that, that's very troublesome that our, you know, our, our fourth estate is supposed to be, you know, keeping an eye on the government and making sure they're looking out for the interest of their constituents. And instead, they, they seem to be beholden to other masters. And uh, over and above the China thing in Canada, how, how old are you, Alex? Do you mind me asking? No, I don't mind. Uh, I'm 34. Okay, so I, I've got 10 years on you. When I was in my very early, well, 1999, I was 20 years old, and we had a major problem uh, uh, with the, these organizations called the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Trade Organization. And they're having all these like meetings all over the world and sort of like making these trade deals, which usurped um, local democratic control and the left was all over it. You know, we had the battle in Seattle. There was one in Canada at Quebec city that one of my friends went to. And it seemed like, you know, the sort of left and center left and some parts of the establishment were legitimately concerned by these extra national, supranational organizations getting up in the business of countries. And now uh, fast forward 24 years, and we have the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, all, all of these organizations which are outside of Canada and outside of the United States are just over here telling us what to do. And the, the sort of mainstream media is to shrug your shoulders and dismiss this all as a conspiracy theory or not worthy of anybody's attention. Like, what do you make of all this? It's been it's been a pretty fascinating paradigm shift. And I think that's what has led uh, folks like you, you and I on some level as well to, to, to writing more, communicating more, in your case, starting a podcast as well, appearing in all kinds of publications is uh, I, I suppose I should be speaking myself, but the left isn't acting like the left. And I can appreciate that power is alluring and wanting to protect you know, a certain level of, of, of your sort of ideological bend. Uh, maybe you'll forgive a few indiscretions here and there. But like, as you were saying, there was the battle in Seattle. There was a G20 in Toronto where Bill Blair, now of the Trudeau cabinet, um, was caught kettling journalists and protesters. And it was a big deal to our left-wing media at the time. The Toronto Star did care about it. And now the Toronto Star does not care that Bill Blair tabled yesterday's Emergencies Act report from the POEC claiming that like, oh, you know, sorry about that whole horse trampling. No big deal. It, it totally met this high threshold, even though uh, CSIS uh, didn't need the threshold and every policing agency, uh, you know, had told us that, you know, existing powers would have gotten the job done. And it was a failure of leadership and application of the law, but not the law itself. And so it's been, that's been remarkable. We've seen sort of a rise of this sort of special interest influence. Um, I think we saw this as well during COVID where it was, it was, it was less about um, say your premier 
or governor in charge and more about who could leverage sort of the most panic online, which organization could make that happen. In Ontario, it was frequently a, a group adjacent to our, our quote unquote science table who were very good at playing the media and then playing the premier's office like a fiddle. And um, they had like-minded media's ear who were similar, similarly uh, concerned and of a political ideology. And then away they went, harms be damned. And so we've seen sort of increasingly that the ends justify the means um, for a group that we once thought to be sort of more on the side of, you know, a workers of the world unite mentality. And you've, you've seen uh, moderates and classical liberals and conservatives now become sort of sitting there going like, okay, I guess we have to take up these these old causes that you guys, you know, used to care about. Like, I never thought that I'd be sort of covering and writing about and, and, and sort of feeling passionate about certain mass protests on behalf of sort of the, the working class and, and, and those who felt hard done by and who had to support sort of the weight of a pandemic response while, while sort of limousine liberal champagne socialist types just sat at home and, and judged them accordingly while breaking all the rules they were they were hoping to enforce themselves. And uh, I mean, it, it's not as if I was not uncaring to these issues, but it was it was interesting to be sitting there going, uh, hey guys, like I thought I was supposed to be the conservative in this situation. Uh, instead, we have this, uh, this sort of boogeyman approach that you used to accuse, you know, prime ministers like Stephen Harper of, um, whereas th this is the most authoritarian I've ever seen things uh, in North America. And uh, and yet uh, and yet, you know, we're still the fascists, evidently. We're still we're still the problem by standing here and being inconvenient. Uh, but you can get away with all these things that back when you were in university and reading Trotsky for the first time, you would have been, you know, potentially just ashamed of yourself if you knew where where you would have been 10 years later. Yeah. One of the things that the covid regime really did affect was people's perceptions of reality or at least how they engaged in it, especially politically. Um, because we now we've seen, you know, we're one year into the freedom convoy and people who were standing up against the government working with corporations to manage society with very little democratic input, you know, which I believe is one of the sort of doctrinaire definitions of fascism, you know, um, the, the, the Liberal Party and the administrative state working with large pharmaceutical companies, with extranational bodies to dictate policy here, um, the creation of this ArriveCan app, which is something like a, a surveillance state apparatus, and dictating to people whether or not they can earn a living and support their families. Uh, I, if you, I, I don't know what to say to the people who believe that standing up against this makes you a fascist. Like I said, it's, it seems like it's the inversion of reality or at least the inversion of language, which I think has been spoken of before by people who've warned us about authoritarian regimes. <laughs> yeah, they can come in, uh, in a sort of banal way, I suppose, where maybe it just sort of creeps up on you where you you become so established and you become so insulated that you start to forgive 
um, the smallest of indiscretions, and then all of a sudden you've you've gone a little bit too far. I mean, I uh, I trace some of this back to the 2016 American election. Like, I still think, and not to bring up just Trump almost as non sequitur, but it almost just felt like that loss shook a percentage of the population to such a degree uh, and sort of a very online percentage of people like, like not necessarily symbolic out in the, the world walking around, but this sort of professional opinion class who were just, their sensibilities were so rattled by the fact that like a, a poor Clinton campaign could still lose to this like amusing, just juggernaut of a Trump campaign that of course had its own flaws that everything after that um, is is acceptable because that loss was so unacceptable that you can now excuse just whatever to make sure that you don't you don't hand over the keys to that guy ever again and so now we're sort of living in this like post post PTSD world where that, that, that trigger is so large for them and, and their, their worldview was so rattled that it's, it's, eh, we're on the side of big pharma now and eh, we're on the side of, of, of every large corporation <laughs> because they, you know, they kind of, you know, don't agree with him either. And the, the former enemy of my enemy is my friend and, and we're all just going to, sell a lemon together and we're all going to start acting out of character because um, we can't allow these people any quarter anymore. We view them just as these, these ne'er-do-wells as these, as the prime minister, you know, said this sort of fringe minority of racist, misogynists, etc. I mean, we've all been called everything under the sun at this point. And, oh and yeah. Oh yeah. No, I mean, that's, it, it got personal for a lot of people, like including myself, you know, I, I have, former associates and even members of my family who've effectively given me the silent treatment and or said really terrible things about me in other forums that I've come to find out about. And I just kind of have to roll with it. You know, um, do you, do you see this um, like backlash uh, incredulity with the Trump phenomenon uh, being imported to Canada, much as Canada always seems to import uh, the neighbors' politics, like in, in in the media's treatment of Pierre Polyevra, I'm not a huge fan of, of uh, you know what Jeremy McKenzie refers to as schmoll peepee. Uh, I don't. I, I think he's a bit of a huckster and an opportunist, and I don't have any faith in the Conservative Party of Canada whatsoever. Just to put that out there, but the the, the it strikes me that like establishment media in Canada are are trying to make him into some boogeyman that hates women or whatever, and I I I don't get it. Like, do you have any insight into that at all? Uh, my insight would just be that they always have imported American cultural issues and culture wars, often to fill the vacuum and the sort of undeniable truth that things in Canada in in saner times are, are not normally that interesting like we we can sometimes be the loft above like a pretty wild and raucous party and uh, you see it with the way that the liberals are are so consistently able to sort of leverage 
you know, sort of certain concerns about gun control, um, like they were just caught with legislation that made absolutely no sense where they were more or less coming for half the hunting rifles on the market, but making them sound like they were these assault style, um, just spray and pray weapons when you're having people and, and even sort of indigenous leaders going, whoa, 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 like that's, that's what I used to like hunt deer to feed my family. Um, and so they've always, they've always been able to turn to certain wedges, abortion, guns, uh, paint, paint that boogeyman as, as able to, to creep up here and infect our politicians. And even though our conservative politicians are practically Democrats or what used to be Democrats, now the Democratic Party down south is, has gone through a similar sort of post-Trump transition where it seems like just everything is acceptable as long as it keeps the, uh, the wolf from the door. But uh, in, in the instance of, of, of the last couple of years, it's just been, yeah, you sort of in, in, imported this, even the mass sort of COVID freakout and the moralizing we saw with states like Florida and what have you in the early days. And, and in Ontario, all I can sort of keep speaking to is the crazy place where I live, which for your listeners, Ontario was the, had the longest lockdown in North America at one point. Um, which was just just a joy. Um, and you had this sort of puritanical shaming of people in parks. And the mayor of Toronto, who has uh, since resigned for personal indiscretions, <laughs> not related to COVID, but related to he and his staffers, uh, they had set up snitch lines. So it's like, oh, your family like took a walk on the beach, like report you know, be a good citizen, report them. And we, of course, know now, and that most people should have known at the time, that that, A, did nothing for public health, and B, just ended up just eroding trust permanently. And so you had this sort of journalistic class that was taking the streetcar by a busy park and going, can you believe all these people not staying home? And it's like, yeah, I can, I can believe it, because those are the people that have been keeping your city, province, country running. And those are the people that live in, you know, small homes, who don't have large backyards, who don't have large portfolios, and they're hurting and they're lonely and they have needs beyond patting themselves on the back for following what is increasingly a political ideology. And so it's just been fascinating to see that and to see the moralization sort of baked into the reporting. And I do believe that that was also imported um, from the US on some level. You often just see Canadian reporters almost acting as 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 sort of these this bizarro version of like a bigger american uh outlet or reporter that they admire like a disinformation reporter so there's for every uh taylor lawrence down south there's a rachel gilmore or something like that and you just have these people who now seem to exist not to speak truth to power but power to truth and function as this sort of scold as opposed to what we once used to think of the media as, um, or say, you know, what came from the Globe on Friday morning, you know, actual dogged reporting and being inconvenient to powerful people as opposed to helping them sell a message just because that message, you know, is more agreeable than, than what those, those ne'er-do-well, unacceptable folk believe in. Right. And, and that, that, that sort of, uh, narrative crafting and messaging to help the government has filtered its way down into other institutions. 
Last week, I spoke with an old friend of mine who also lives in t- Toronto, a school teacher, union representative, um, and kind of acts as like a go-between between her local union and the Ontario Federation of Labour. And I wanted to ask her about the question of why unions, especially public sector unions in Canada, had sort of like, you know, uh, abandoned the idea of bodily sovereignty of their mandate to protect their members' interests and also open hostility to the Freedom Convoy. And she had shown or spoke of a, a, a memo given out by the OFL where they, you know, they were having this like internal uh, conundrum where they really didn't want to use the same language about people's bodies, you know, my body, my choice, um, you know, it's sort of bo- the, the, the basic notions of bodily autonomy, because in their minds that had been appropriated by the Freedom Convoy. And one of the things the media did was that, you know, or, or some actors within it basically brought in this non sequitur of, well, the Freedom Convoy people don't actually believe in bodily autonomy because they don't believe in a woman's right to choose, even though nobody in the Freedom Convoy ever talked about that. It, that's a, it's, a, it's, it's a similar but separate issue that had nothing to do with what they were protesting about, which was the mandates. And it was seemed to me like it served as an example of importing the neighbor's politics because abortion has always been this major contentious issue in the United States. And it, it's, it struck me that they had to do that because they had no argument and it made them look like the hypocrites they are for supporting the notion that your right to exist, your right to have a living, to support your family to travel, to do anything was contingent on accepting this experimental gene therapy into your body. And like, it it was just hypocrisy the whole way down, but because they couldn't, they couldn't deal with that in their heads, they had to dissemble and, and use this language of scolding and of trying to invert reality. And, And I don't like, how do the, how do those folks come back from that? Like, how do we reach equilibrium again, where you know, pl- plain spoken language and legitimate argument and legitimate discussion are, are once again the order of the day? I don't I don't know how easy it will be, but I do increasingly feel more optimistic um, in that regard. And and just back to the the previous point, it was fascinating to see. Um, in, in a vacuum, the bodily autonomy discussion, it, it should be like those, those should have been similar. You know, if you, you believe in one, you should believe in the other. But there was just this in lieu of, of sort of uh, having a stronger argument, there was just this inability to, to engage in anything but ad hominem attack where it was just, oh, but these people are still gross and they still look like Trump supporters and they're still these sort of nasty bearded blue collar types and often not actually. I mean, one of the things I found when I was at the the Freedom Convoy or, or on an overpass taking photos and talking to people was, you know, these were very diverse groups from different backgrounds, often Eastern European uh, who had, you know, family with experiences with communism and who were worried that on some level this was happening here. But I think in 
sort of rebuke of the last, say, two years, there has certainly been, um, I, on some level, the, the, I believe that there is sort of some green grass growing through the snow, to borrow from a, a recent episode of Joe Rogan, where it is becoming more and more common um, to see the growth of independent media, to see the this sort of ideological pushback for people asking for plain language, this realization that a very small percentage of people who are sort of adjacent to or members of our sort of chattering class have been influencing policy for so long and especially sort of hyper woke quote unquote policy um, of late and that there are parents and uh, legal experts and professors and doctors now looking around going like, what the heck happened here? Like I, I have a, one of my uh, friend of mine who I met during COVID who followed my writing and I followed him is uh, and works in infectious disease in a, in a high up uh, position. And, uh, during all the fear mongering was, was sort of telling me like, if you know, it's, it's, it's not quite on that level. And, but then was also telling me that these, these new kids coming out of med school, they're coming out like as politicians first and doctors second, like they are, they are, they're so ready to like take to the ramparts to defend mandates and to turn everything into this sort of socio-political issue on the left. Um, and they're already, they've already got these large followings where they don't stick to their area of expertise. There's this level of sort of epistemic creep all across the board that it's, uh, it's a problem for them. And they're concerned about it where it's just like, are you going to be this sort of very online guy in the ER? Or are you going to like actually do your job? And do you always want to be in a position where you're doing your work and someone could just Google you and find out that, you know, the patient that they're working on, they don't actually like that patient or don't agree with them. And what kind of lines does that cross? And so I do believe we're in a moment where the sort of ordinary person is looking around and going like, I don't want to, I don't want to play along with this anymore. I don't want to, there was an element of go along to get along, but now, now we're, we're getting too far here where we've got uh, in Canada, medically assisted uh, intervention into suicide program that the government offers that they're now considering expanding to children. And, oh my God. Uh, how many, it, do, do you know offhand how many people have uh, made use of this and like have exited this mortal coil with the assistance of the Trudeau regime? Yeah. So the made use of is in the tens of thousands a year. Um, from reading a recent report, I think it was this year was somewhere between 20 to 30,000, but don't quote me on that. Oh my God. Uh, many of those people were suffering from legitimate debilitating illnesses, but there were some in there where it was, um, they were responding to different levels of pressure, be it, be it, uh, mental, um, socioeconomic. There's almost a, Oh, it makes good business sense to kill myself because I have, I have an autoimmune disorder and I'm in pain and uh, I'm broke and the government is at least offering me this lifeline. And, and just how tragic is that? And so you have this, you have this mission creep, you know, that's now happening across the board where it's, it's, it's these policies are, we're starting to see the, 
the dystopian version of them. And if the road to hell is paved with good intentions, we've been off road for quite a long time. And it's, um, I think your ordinary family now, if they pay attention to the news and not necessarily the mainstream news, they're even there sort of wising up to the fact that like, oh, we've gone too far. We've gone too far with school boards. We've gone too far with MAID. We've gone too far with, with some of the sort of DEI approach uh, to restructuring our institutions where, yes, it's important to be progressive and open-minded and, and to make everybody feel welcome, but it's another thing to uproot the competence of our structures and organizations entirely to continually sort of placate this sort of five or 10% of activists who give us a really hard time if they don't get what they want. Do you and think it's even, do, do you believe it to actually be five to 10%? I, I, I get the feeling it's less. Yeah, I think within an organization, maybe it's five to 10%, but on a population level, it could be one. It could be 0.5. It could be 0.0001. It's it. It is glaringly small. Like I think we all had those moments during during COVID, and I'm not sure where you are in the states. Do you let your listeners know of that? Yeah, or? no, I I live in upstate New York. I'm not too far from Canada. I'm like I'm okay. th- I'm a three hour drive to the border crossing at Buffalo, and about the same okay. to the one at the Thousand Islands Bridge. Okay, nice. Yeah, but my my point was that you'd have this sort of fervor and and sort of media induced government induced behavioral psych psychological fervor where it's just you're everyone's you know staying home because you know no one wants to kill grandma and it's only the the most selfish sort of anti-social yobs who are out and about but like even in the the, the sort of pits of uh lockdown despair if you like went out and about and you went for a run or you went to meet up with friends and do like the speakeasy thing, um, there would still be community. There would still be people gathering everywhere and they would not look the way that you were told they look and they would not act the way you were told that they'd act. And people find a way to come together uh, and they find a way to, to make meaning in the meaningless. And it was, that to me was heartwarming to see. And you could tell that there was still a spark there. And I think that spark um, exists now in when it comes to matters of institutional rot and incompetence and this sort of proliferation of speech policing and thought crime and wrong think and what have you, where it's it's the young parents of today and the and the the folks who who went along to get along are waking up and realizing on, 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 on some level, um, if we don't push back now reasonably, um, this gets, this gets a whole lot worse. And this, it it is a trap. It is a, it is a Chinese finger trap. You know, the, the more you, the more you struggle with these issues, the more you let them sort of in, infect so many of your institutions beyond a reasonable measure um there becomes no way out of them because they all get protected by their own sort of brand of legalese and what have you and you have these choked off school boards and and well another thing that affects this is the sort of you know get back to the 
term dystopia. You know, in, in 1984, Orwell wrote about the Ministry of Truth and how they were constantly whittling down the number of words you could use and neutering people's ability to communicate effectively. And basically rewriting history and not presenting reality as it is. And uh, with regards to the Freedom Convoy, uh, a point that many people have made is that if, if you weren't there, if you were not in Ottawa or at one of the other protest locations and you didn't know anyone in the trucking business or just a person interested in freedom at all that was connected to it or had been there in some way, and you went on television and you watched CBC or you went online and you heard from the likes of the Rachel Gilmore's and Gerald Butts's of the world, you know, it was just, you know, uh, Nazis running around Ottawa with pitchforks. And, you know, uh, this gets personal for me because one of my cousins, a couple of my cousins like bought that narrative hook, line and sinker, even though a whole bunch of people in my family are truckers and, I went to Ottawa and I took video and posted it on Twitter. And, you know, I, I paid very close attention to it all the time. And it was plain as day for anyone willing to look that the, the, the narrative manufacturer was just that. But they keep doing it like the, the government continues to double down on it, you know, and, and even in Justice Rouleau's uh, ruling and, and the commentary since, especially from Trudeau and his and Marco Mendocino and all these people like they're still doubling down on lies they're still trying to say that like Diagalon is an actual thing based on one guy with a patch on his vest you know um, they're still trying to say that you know Trudeau said something about you know there's a small minority of people peddling misinformation that caused people to die and like this is the dude who greenlit made and has caused tens of thousands of people to die tens of thousands of people possibly to commit suicide, leave the country, turn this place into an authoritarian cesspool. But like people still believe it. And I, I, I just, I can't wrap my head around like how much, how much longer is it going to take for the forces of reality to get into these people's heads and shake them and say, guys, you've been lied to this entire time. And the 32% of the 59% of people who voted for Trudeau last time, if in fact those numbers are even legitimate, to stop voting for this nonsense and, and bring us closer to 1984. Like, I, I don't know, you, you, you're closer to the sort of cathedral north than I am. Like, do you have any sense, like, there? do you have any sense that there's people in the media in Canada that, are, are having some reflection on the role they played and basically lying to their fellow citizens about what just went on here? I think some, but not many. Unfortunately, I, I still do believe that if you want, particularly in Canada, any version of an unvarnished um, or, or unspoiled, unsullied uh, opinion or reporting that you often have to look to more sources. Not that that doesn't exist in the States, obviously, with sort of the MSNBC, Fox um, sort of setup, and, and what a joke MSNBC has turned into. But um, no, I mean, what, you, what you've sort of seen is, is there's this kind of disinformation racket, too, that Glenn Greenwald wrote about recently. You have all these people who claim to be experts in it. But the reality is, is that that expertise doesn't exist yet. 
it's like not tied schools. There's no like credential for it. It just means that like I'm someone who spends too much time online and I don't like what I now view as conservative adjacent uh, political behavior online. And so I'm gonna just like write this report that links you back to da 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 da, which then I can just infer is like Russian. And then there we go again. Like it's not a coincidence that the day before this this China leak to the globe happened, that uh, the National Observer, which is which is a far left sort of eco activist um, online newspaper, published another report from another academic saying that the Freedom Convoy um, and their message was like inherently russian and amplified by like russian disinformation bots and servers which again i mean it's disappointing in that there is still sort of a, a percentage of our professional class that will just immediately accept that as truth as opposed to going like hey haven't you guys like gone to the well a couple times on this and like hey didn't i know that one guy who went to it and like he wasn't so bad and i actually agreed with a few points about it but maybe i didn't agree with the execution and like with you, like I like when I was at the convoy, like I didn't, I didn't see anything. Like there were obviously the early flags, one of which I think was just like the most obvious government plant I've ever seen. That was the that was but the swastika guy. I, there was right? a, there were, it was either swastika guy or to me actually Confederate flag guy with that full sort of ghillie suit and the balaclava. Um, because I had heard from somebody there that swastika guy thought he was making like a, a point about how Canada's acting like Nazis, but it came off so clumsily that it was like, dude, what are you thinking? Like he was like, he was an Eastern European man. But it's, I can't speak to him. It was, it was like brand new Confederate flag guy with a truck on it, ghillie suit. And everyone's yelling at him as he walks through the pit and all the videos, people telling him to get the hell out of there. And he has no expression on his face and he's wearing sunglasses. And I'm like, that's not like a government spook. Like, I don't know who is. But it was when I was there, I didn't. Can I make a point just about the rebel flag thing? Something that um, I, I think people outside, well, a lot of people inside Canada and a lot of people outside Canada don't know this either, that I thought was notable in its absence from discussion uh throughout any commentary on the convoy is that the rebel flag the confederate flag um has got a long history of use in quebec especially by certain elements of the quebec nationalist movement so setting aside the fact that this one guy was obviously like a government plant and a stooge um it seems to me like there's a part of the canadian establishment that want to ignore the sort of like Quebec nationalist movements appropriation of this symbol because, you know, the forces of international liberalism have declared it um, beyond the pale to, to reference this history in the U S in a, in a history, which also includes uh, people just wanting to not be ruled by a distant foreign power. Um, it all has to be about, slavery and racism they, they've basically retconned any other consideration of ideas or meaning involved with this symbol or the fact that like symbols and memes as such often take on a life of their own and don't always necessarily mean what you think they mean depending on the context of the user 
And uh, there, there was just something about that, the, 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 the Canadian media wanting to sweep away these hillbillies from Quebec. Because one thing I noticed at the convoy was there's an awful lot of French people there. And yeah, I noticed, I noticed the same thing. It, it was almost 50, 50% Quebec. Like when I was doing radio, I, I was, I tried to explain, I'm like, I don't think we've made this out to just be these like rednecks from Alberta, but it's, 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 it's it was just as much this discussion about how alienated Canadians felt, especially living in a province at the time that was under effing curfew. Like, hey, do you need to walk the dog at 9.01 p.m.? Nah, the cops are going to pull you over and harass you. Right. And this because, is the thing you know, is like, well, the, the, the life in Quebec under Francois Legault had basically devolved into like an apartheid police state. And I don't I don't think people realize that or know just how fucking bad it got. You know what I'm saying? No, they had like nightly stop and frisk and... Like Montreal, for example, has has a large um, like Hasidic Jewish community, and those those are family oriented people. And and you'd be out, you know, speaking with your brother or or meeting with a large family, and you'd be in your regalia or your regalia is the wrong word, but you'd be in in your dress, and the cops would pull you over and give you a hard time, and. Uh, I think many of us have seen the video of, I believe it was Yannick Pollock, the independent reporter, might be getting his name wrong, where he was out shooting for Rebel or Post Millennial or somebody, and the cop goes, are you Jew media? Are you out here being Jew media? And you're going like, on what planet is this acceptable and you had just silence from the left and then you even had silence from some conservatives because Francois Legault is theoretically a conservative and yet he he even he leaned into the the worst of sort of anti-science fear and dogma as a means of you know controlling a population and, and sort of kicking a can down the road because Quebec has you know, terrible medical infrastructure, much like Ontario, and has just an atrocious situation in long-term care. And the population was made to bear the brunt of it, and particularly, you know, sort of more vulnerable or cultural communities. And we all just pretended that was okay in a Canada that pretends it's the progressive beacon of the world. Yeah, I remember I remember that um, journalist being harassed and I, I showed that video to my wife, who happens to be Jewish, and like she just couldn't believe it. I'm like, "Yep, it's 2022, and members of the police are allowed to say stuff like this, and the media ignores it because the cops are the good guys this time, right?" Like, there was no reporting on that. Literally, literally no reporting on that because, for I mean, for many reasons that we've touched on, but also, oh, he's like rebel news adjacent so we can never signal boost these people even when they do do good work and even when they do through their plucky individualism shine a light on on real issues that are a concern to millions of canadians because they're viewed as again like this sort of deplorable group that's just dangerous at all costs when there were real indiscretions going on that were, you know, so easily just cast aside because they were happening to those, those other people that Canadians aren't supposed to care about. Yeah. The, I don't, 
Yeah, I, I, I want to move on from this part of it because we're like relitigating the past, but at the same time, like <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'm ever going to get over the sort of scape scapegoating and outgrouping that went on. Um, I think you can tell we're not. We probably never will if we if we sort of went back to it reflexively. Yeah, well, I mean, but this is the thing, though, right? Like, as far as like moving society forward goes, we do have to reconcile what went on, and I mean. The, the, the trick the trick is is that we can't i don't know if we're ever going to get it out of the government i mean you know like i said this this ruling comes down on friday and, and under normal circumstances you know uh the, the politicians involved w- w- should or would resign and i mean and, and with the ceases thing about chinese involvement like in any normal circumstance two pieces of news like that happening at once to any government would mean the opposition would go into full-on attack mode or the parties involved would like resign or issue some kind of mea culpa or say they're going to get on it and fix it. And and we've seen none of this. And I mean, even Polyevra, like uh, there was a Polyevra made some kind of announcement about the ruling and like, he keeps going on about the cost of milk and taxes and it's too expensive. And he's forgotten basic fundamental principles of society that like the government doesn't get to fire you from your job. They don't get to do to, you know, enforce medical apartheid, prevent you from getting on an airplane. Like the, the crimes of the Trudeau regime are so much more deeper than, whoa, inflation, inflation, bro, inflation, bro, milk's expensive, bro. Like the poly ever is like the most milk toast, useless opposition leader next to Jagmeet Singh, if I may. <laughs> and you may it's your show um but yeah no it's it's you can tell that there's an element of marching orders with the conservatives where it's our previous support of certain things like the convoy or sort of anti-lockdown sentiment has been used as a bludgeon to beat us with by the media and while pierre sort of publicly privately still very much believes against those things um there's an element of like just stay on your stay on your messaging so you should say that this is inappropriate and you should say that you know the justice's ruling for example in regards to the emergencies act uh, i still think this was inflamed by the prime minister and let's all be honest it was um but there's a you know keep going back to the pocketbook issues to like court the undecided and to court those percentages of people that keep sort of abandoning the liberal ship as life gets too expensive and so i'm not sure we're going to be seeing them touch any sort of social third rails in any meaningful way over the next year or two and then it all really kind of comes back to the the sort of performative nature of this sort of liberal ndp coalition that the media says is not a coalition um (laughs) because in any in in any other circumstance, the NDP and Jagmeet Singh would would pull the plug here, right? But there's more going on behind the scenes than they let you in on. For every time he launches into some non sequitur rant about grocery store executives, he's not telling you that he's kicking the can down the road because the NDP is broke. They're flat broke. They can't campaign. They can't fundraise. He is not popular internally they know the party isn't growing and if there was an election right now that they would perform similarly to worse 
and they don't have a great ground game. They don't have any sort of particularly strong sort of ballot harvesting campaign system, which we now know is so important as the Democrats have practically have superpowers because of it. And some of it is actually quite legitimate. Like they're world-class at knocking doors and getting you to mail and vote like while they're watching you do it. Like they practically show up with the envelope neatly pressed. And, um, you know, that's what it's going to take to win elections in a, in a, in a system now that it's deliberately been made more difficult for certain people to win elections. And, um, it's really just exposed, uh, the nature of this sort of farcical parliamentary setup at the moment where this in any other country, G7 nation parliamentary government, this would, this would dissolve it. Uh, this is a, this is a big deal. They can't just yada yada this away and go, Oh, we're going to find the leak. That's the real story. And Oh, the conservatives pouncing is the real story. No, the real story is that the Chinese government helped Justin Trudeau get elected and particularly, and if you go through sort of the reporting, they wanted him in a minority too. They like, like him in a minority, which makes you wonder, you know, then what's Jagmeet's role there? It's it's not as if Jagmeet is smart enough or cunning enough to to maybe be getting as big a piece of the pie. But uh, it's like they almost know that like a liberal sort of minority coalition, like they just will be so feckless, uh, will be so toothless that uh, they'll be their perfect sort of proxy partner and or doormat. Right, as 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 I uh, said in response to your uh, recent Substack, it's it's a it's the bamboo republic. <laughs> and uh, well, uh, on the on the point of Mr. Jagmeet Singh, something that I wondered when the Emergencies Act was um, scuttled, and then you know in the immediate aftermath of it, where Trudeau made this deal with Singh. Because Trudeau understood the financial and electoral issues the NDP were facing and took advantage of it and offered Singh this coalition arrangement, whatever you want to call it. I, I thought to myself, like, the left aren't completely uh, vacuous and stupid. Uh, I mean, there's some smart ones there. And I, would, and I would have thought that there would be some people within the NDP who would have mutinied against Jagmeet Singh in saying, like, you've just given uh, your approval to this weaponization of the nuclear option, which was the Emergencies Act, and you've set a precedent for this to be used against us in the future or against one of our client groups, like, say, a public sector union or maybe a radical environmental group who might have a protest in the future, and then, uh, say, a future Pierre Polyevra invokes the Emergencies Act against them. Like there's somebody in the NDP who must have understood this. And I had this like secret uh, flickering candle of hope inside me that there would be a, a, a small group within the NDP who would go rogue against uh, Jagmeet Singh and then contact the conservatives or the Bloc Québécois and organize a confidence motion and to hell with Jagmeet. But like that never eventuated. So like as much as it's easy to blame Singh, and I mean, you know, He's a vainglorious twat and he deserves everything he's got coming to him. <laughs> but like the rest of the NDP, like what were you guys thinking? Like where, 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 where's this, where's the old firebrand left? You know, where did they go? I think they were either made to go inward or they went to another vocation because the issue that this uh, sort of comes back to is 
we're now in an era where it's like party subservience is the rule, never the exception. And everything is hyper whipped. And anyone who steps out of line, you know, gets 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 a boot out of caucus or a cabinet or gets gets immediately shuffled, told they can't run for re-election. Even the Ontario Conservatives have done this to to more principled politicians like Roman Babber, who who stood up during lockdowns and just went like, look, like I'm, I'm I grew up Eastern European, like I I witnessed this firsthand. I'm not a fan of this. Surely we can we can do this uh, we can do this differently. And he was he was castigated accordingly. And so it's not as if maybe there aren't some old school lefties still in the NDP who who want to be rebel rousers and 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 to to stand up for the the working man. But they're just, they have to go along to get along too. And, and like anytime anyone now does anything against the party, the media also pounces on it in a way, the mainstream media pounces on it in a way that further sort of disincentivizes it. Like, like every now and then with the liberals, like an MP like Anthony House father will just be like, I don't want to vote for this. Like, I'm not sure. And that always becomes like front page news for like a hot second on the Toronto Star. And it, it all of a sudden you have this extra sort of light shone on you and you're going to get extra, extra sort of an extra chewing out from, from the PMO and, and advisors and it used to be normal for there to be disagreement within a party. And now it's, it's, it's viewed as a, as a sort of how dare you give our opponents any sort of leverage, give them any sort of in. And so the system now isn't, isn't set up particularly well for any kind of feedback because it's just full on tribalism. It's, it's not actually this, this sort of complementary and cooperative parliament that theoretically the British parliamentary structure should be. Um, and you see it in the States as well, right? Where it's just, it's just, it's our side, no matter what, uh, even if, you know, we don't agree with this Senator, we don't agree with this governor or what have you. It's like, they'll always end up voting for us. Even if we view them as like on the Trump side or the DeSantis side or the, this side or the, that side, or even the Democrats who have their really kooky left-wing side, they'll still sort of mix in with the Dixiecrat side and everyone will just sort of, will sort of vote accordingly at the end of the day. Maybe one person goes rogue, but it's never more than that. And so that's going to be a real institutional problem in the years to come where it's, it's, it's not as if they, people don't start out as, as more principled when they get into politics, but to survive inside the apparatus, to make it more than one term, you are now expected to just sign yourself over to the party. Yeah. I, uh, I posed the same question about the NDP uh, directly to Charlie Angus on Twitter, and he blocked me. <laughs> of course he did. He, he blocks everybody. Um, and man, I, I, I should know this because I sort of dabbled in like punk and indie music when I was a kid. But what band was that guy in? Uh, I don't know. I do know that. Some of those guys used to be kind of punk rock, even like Warren Kinsella, the, the former liberal strategist, used to be in a punk band as well. Whoa. And so they, the, 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 sort of, <laughs> the aging, I know, so the, the, aging, the aging hipsters are not as uh, rebellious as they used to be. Like now they're just these proxies of power and they still, just because there's like a Ramones print on the wall, doesn't mean they still have any of that punk rock left in them. Yeah, the... Um... The COVID regime certainly uh, inverted 
um, more than just language and ideas. It took some, it took some people and just, uh, I don't know, man, just shook their brains around a little too hard. Yeah, it, expo it exposed, I think, the limits of the political spectrum. Like if you think of that sort of compass, uh, the, the sort of political compass where you sort of look at this X, Y axis. And um, I remember seeing a sign when I was at the Freedom Convoy where someone was holding up that just said, there's no more left and right. There's only up and down. And I thought about it, that that was actually pretty appropriate for, for a group of for this largely sort of bipartisan protest to people from all different walks of life, that it, you weren't there because you were a liberal or conservative. It's because you had a problem with that, uh, that top corner authoritarianism, you know, like it wasn't, uh, I think it, I think the interesting thing is, as, as the last few years is, as has shown us is that it's, uh, we're still capable of creating libertarians. They're not just like this like dying breed. Like we've got, we've got a, a couple million more after the last few years, which has been kind of fascinating to see. Yeah, they just don't seem to have any representation either in the media or politics. Um, you know, the, I, I, I've dabbled in libertarian politics over the years. The libertarian party in the United States until very recently was something of a gong show. Um, they just had a takeover by the Mises caucus, which, you know, might not sound terribly uh, warm and fuzzy to some, but they're a little bit more grounded in reality. Um, I, I don't know about Canada anymore. I haven't lived in Canada for like seven years. So, um, and uh, I'd say you, know, you timed that pretty well. Well, it's never, you know, what's funny is as a kid growing up, I was, I, I, I drank the Kool-Aid, man. I was full top, full board, CBC, liberal Canadian, maple leaf on my backpack when I went traveling, you know, uh, listened to CBC radio all the time, read the Globe and Mail, you know, paused, um, libtard, so to speak. And the older I've gotten and the more places I've traveled, I've realized all of that was a manufactured lie. Most of it was BS. And, um, you know, I, I, I didn't think Canada was going to stoop this low. Um, but, yeah, I guess I did sort of time it right, you know, and thank the Lord for my American wife. Yeah, you timed that well. We all be so lucky. It's, uh, yeah, no, it's all, it's cultural identity stuff can 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 often come from somewhere of truth but then over time it just it is just over polished and turns into something corporate and hollow entirely and that's sort of how i view the sort of packaging of canadiana now where in reality it's just this now it's just this sort of thin veneer of passive aggression and sort of corporatist statist culture well it's it's interesting that that's all been sort of happening in slow motion and then we have the revelations from CSIS about Chinese involvement and you know no, no offense to anyone from China this is all about the Chinese Communist Party and the ideology which it is infused with right that the, 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 in addition to affecting our political classes you have to wonder how much of it is affecting us culturally with this like sort of uniparty way of thinking um uh, castigating your neighbors for not doing what the party says like the sort of creeping communism of our transition into this new bamboo republic yeah it'll be like it it will be interesting to see some of the ramifications of that also 
like if, if to anyone who knows anything about China, like it's it's this influence would be mainland Chinese. This would be Beijing, the Beijing apparatus. Uh, this wouldn't be. This would exclude the majority of sort of Hong Kong families or 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 uh, adjacent sort of organizations here. Um, and so it, it'll be on a cultural level, yeah, and like in certain Mandarin communities, um, how influential have these sort of proxy government organizations been? We, you hear about, you know, the potential for sort of threats at the front door and and this just sort of implication that you're going to go along, get along with them and, and not cause any trouble. We know now that, and I, like a few people, had heard about this a long time ago, that the Chinese do operate surveillance and intelligence operations on soil and Western soil when they can, hence even some of the balloon discourse, which is both inflated, like a balloon, I suppose, and, and, also, and, also, and also true, to think true at once. It's, it's been sort of the balloon exposure has been slightly over the top, but they are up there and some of them are hobbyist balloons and some of them aren't and some of them might be sharing information with with other powers and and what have you and so it'll be interesting to see if there's any sort of pushback from sort of certain mandarin communities in canada if say next election you know someone shows up at their door again and with a bit of cash and says you know what the guy in the blue he's just he's not he doesn't have China's interests at heart, uh, or you know your version of China's interests at heart. Like we're going to ask you to do to do so and so, and 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 you know will that happen again? Where will these potential investigations go? And will the liberal government just try to sort of sit on them and squash them and spend more time trying to find the leak uh, on the CSIS end, as opposed to doing the right thing and finding you know the problems inside their government and. I think we all know the answer to that because they know how many people have been impacted by this. And there are much bigger stories to tell if you know, certain reporters uh, will be allowed to tell them. Right. One thing I wonder uh, to bring the Americans back into this is these revelations from Friday, the sort of ongoing issues with the communist party of China doing its thing in Canada some in a sort of grand chessboard 30,000 foot view of things, you know, the bipolar nature of um, oh, geopolitics is now sort of the United States versus China and to a lesser degree, Russia. Um, do you think maybe there's some people in the American intelligence establishment and they're sort of like, you know, deep state as it were, who might be a little bit concerned with this uh, f- uh, foothold that the Communist Party has in the, with the next door neighbors? I would think this should be setting off alarm bells south of the border. Um, do you, have you seen anything in American media or heard anything about any expression of concern from our southern neighbors? You might see something on Fox. Um, there what i do know from being somewhat plugged in with this stuff is and it's in my latest piece uh i had somebody with intel sources saying um the sort of five eyes security network which includes the united states and canada um 
has often been reticent to share information on China with Canada because there was there was seen to be the the high potential for a leak and influence. And so those alarm bells have certainly been going off for years. Um, the links have been there. They've been in sort of the calls been coming from inside the house. And so I, you'd have to think that certain things would be floated to Canada. And then you sort of wonder, you know, well, well is this going to get back to Beijing? And for all we know, you, you throw some false information in there too to see what goes back to Beijing because then that proves, oh yeah, that definitely was Canada. And so it's... Um, it will quietly be setting alarm bells, um, but whether we see anybody go on public record who isn't a conservative is hard to say because there's an element of trying to protect your narrative right now and protect your projection of power that everything's fine, we're not compromised, you know, business as usual, nothing to see here, folks. But there's there's a lot to see here, and this is um, this has been building for years. And it's it's bigger than anyone imagines even now. It goes it goes quite deep. There's people speaking hushed tones about it, and um, we'll see where it ends up. It's uh, we sure know that in Canada, our liberal government in the states, the sort of democratic establishment right now, they'll they'll do all that they can to cover it up. Oh, like I said, I I I would think that th this might be raising more alarm bells south of the border, but you know, um, the deep state does as the deep state does. And um, the, the, pre the president being this cognitively deficient, stoddering old man. And, you know, who knows who's in the background that's actually running the show and what their priorities are. But they certainly don't make any sense to me. No, and the priority certain doesn't certainly much like in Canada doesn't seem to be the sort of average American average Canadian. I think that we know now that the priority is not the working class. It's not industry. It's not the people who keep the lights on. It's it's whatever student union designs we have right now and, and these sort of passion projects that people don't actually vote for, but are then left holding the bill for. Right. But, and, and all of this sort of points to, you know, the Freedom Convoy uh, as a symbol of one of the freedom convoy was very popular around the world as a symbol of sort of populist revolt against this technocratic international um, government system that seems to have affected the entire West. Like our governments don't represent us anymore. They represent, you know, Klaus Schwab. They represent the Chinese communist party. They represent faceless corporations and, um, you know, I, I really believe the Freedom Convoy, e even though it was narrowly about the mandates in Canada, uh, touched on that nerve, given that this same problem, although it looked differently in different countries, is pretty much the same thing. Like, our democracies are not democratic, our politicians don't represent us, and we have a problem here that's not being addressed whatsoever especially if you're just a regular working person. And how big a problem is it when it's the Canadians who are saying enough? <laughs> yeah, that to me was real. always sort of the, the fascinating element of it where it's like you pushed the Canadians too far. And I, 
I love Canada. I'm so thankful for all those who have come before us and given us this this wonderful opportunity that many are squandering. But and it's not as if there wasn't sacrifice in, in Canadian history through war and, and, and efforts to build and, and all kinds of, of, of wonderful things. But uh, there's obviously an element of subservience and, and passivity in the in the population. And uh, to see to see you know, even the most homely and, and well-behaved, you know, drive across the country. Uh, that says a lot. That says that says everything, really. And that that it was so popular. It was more popular around the world as well. Because there wasn't this sort of massive state messaging apparatus and, and sort of broadcast apparatus that was hammering the people at home for it. Like you could, Americans and Europeans reported on it with 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 such a difference of opinion it was like they were seeing it with fresh eyes whereas at home we were constantly being told like well actually these people are bad well actually this is bad well actually they don't know what they're talking about and you had you know people in the news in the states and you had people in, in britain and politicians going well no 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 let's let's hear them out and if 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 they've been pushed this far surely they have justifiable reasons whereas whereas back home you know we had the cbc and the Toronto Star and and Global and CTV to tell us that we were all sort of thought criminals for for sharing you know some of the uh, the concerns and hopes and dreams of these people. Yeah, and that's that's reflected my own experience too. I mean, I I just happened to be in this weird crossroads with going between two jobs at the time. Freedom Convoy was happening, and I'd sort of had a little bit of success on Twitter and on some podcasts talking about trucking issues because like i'm a trucker it's what i do i've been doing it my whole life and then i started writing on freedom convoy and the only people that really would give me any time of day were um the english americans and australians to a lesser extent i was on i was on like 12 podcasts over the course of a couple of weeks and they were all outside of canada all of my writing has been for publications outside of canada like nobody in Canada wants to talk to me or even acknowledge that I exist, but um, you know, which I found very weird, but also in keeping with the sort of insular and self-referential nature of the Canadian media ecosystem. It's just, it's just a shame. And I, 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 I living here in the U S when the freedom convoy was happening, I saw more Canadian flags. And when I would talk to people, <laughs> I would talk to people like at work or just out and about and they'd be like, Oh, you're from Canada. Yeah. Oh man, I'm so I'm so glad what the Freedom Convoy is doing. It's about time somebody stood up to this. It's about time somebody, you know, stood up to the government and everything that's been going on. And I don't know how many people, like both online and in real life, like Americans, said to me, "Man, I'm never going to look at Canadians the same again." I used to just make fun of you guys all the time, but like you got more nuts than anybody else. I know, and yet. Uh... And I heard something similar and, and walking around Ottawa with, with friends or contacts or what have you or strangers, I would often just catch myself going like, oh my God, this is, this is Canada. Like what happened here? Like we, and you kind of laugh. You're like, wow, like the Canadians really did step up. Like who knew? And, uh, you know, whereas if you, if you diverted off Wellington street, it went a, a couple blocks away, there might be somebody, uh, you know, throwing a cup of coffee at you for 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 even thinking of holding a Canadian flag in those circumstances because they've just been 
getting bombarded by the news and, and their own little echo chamber. And we all have our own echo chambers, much as we try to, to, to avoid them. And they've just been made to view it it as such a third rail, whereas I do feel like the sort of international press and the American media and uh, they they were able to view it um, in a much uh, a much more sort of impartial manner. Yeah, and th thanks to them, you know, I, I would hate to think that the Freedom Convoy just ended up being like a different version of uh, Dieppe, but instead of landing at Dieppe, we're you know, at the, at the mouth of the Yangtze River, you know, if I might stretch a couple of analogies. Alex, you've been very generous yeah. with your time, man, and I really appreciate it. Do you have any parting thoughts? Do you have uh, any, um, any, any idea of where the investigation into these uh, CSIS revelations is going to go in the next few weeks? Like, what do you think? Gee, that's... Uh... That's tough to say. Thank you, Gord. It's been it's been nice to connect here, and and thank you to your listeners for for sticking it out with us this long. Um, I think you'll probably see the usual. I mean, there, the timing on this is is circumspect, which is that it went into a long weekend on a Friday, and anyone that knows anything about media and media training is that you like always dump bad news on a Friday because you avoid a news cycle and it's a long weekend in Canada as well. And so we'll be back Tuesday and the conservatives and Pierre will, will have a, a fresh new line of attack on, on China. The liberals will have a fresh line of messaging saying we've already investigated ourselves and found ourselves uh, not guilty of any wrongdoing. <laughs> and it, 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 it might take a miracle inside the structures of power and how they are right now to, to, to come to any sort of meaningful conclusion or, or to bring about any sort of justice. But, but I think people are going to keep digging. I think often with these stories, this will now light a spark for other investigative reporters uh, of the independent variety to go digging. Um, the China files were already well reported on by, by Canadian journalists such as like Terry Glavin. And so now they're going to have even more to work on. You're going to have even more sources now who want to speak out because they know that it's safe to do so. And if they feel passionately about this issue and concerned about this issue, they're going to want to add to the dog pile here. So whether this continues to destabilize an increasingly unpopular sort of liberal, liberal NDP coalition, I believe that will happen. But in regards to just your general monkey business in modern parliament, uh, I'm not expecting it to dissolve anytime soon, but uh, it's uh, it's going to be a show. And it's uh, the liberals have, you know, you get the mess that you deserve in this case. They've they've done so many people wrong. They're obviously beholden now to a foreign power. They, they stopped caring about the little guy so long ago and, and actual liberal issues that... Um, you know, now they now they they're going to replay so. Right. Well, it's just a shame that Trudeau is probably going to drag this out until 2025. Um, the the suffering of Canada will continue, um, but you'll be there to keep writing on it. Um, Pimp, where 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 <laughs> can everybody find you? Yeah, I'll be there to keep beating my head against the wall, and uh, hopefully <laughs> it's. Uh, it's Hopefully it's sooner than that. There, there is always a chance that he, he takes a walk in the snow or, or they know that they have to shuffle the decks at some point. But 
Folks can find me on Substack. Um, it's called Acceptable Views, where they're more than welcome to check out some of the things I've uh, I've been writing about, including the the China file and and all that. And so, uh, and I hope they check out your Substack as well, because I've I've really enjoyed some of your columns. Well, wow, thanks very much, Alex. And you're on Twitter as well. I'm on Twitter at Alex Brown One Seven. If you feel like listening to me all day. I don't necessarily recommend it, but if you ever want to, maybe small doses. Right. All right. Well, again, thank you very much, Alex. I really appreciate your writing. Thank you for making the time for myself and my audience and uh, happy trails, man. Hey, thank you, Gord. All the best.